Welcome to the Dialogue Book Report, where we talk about books and literature of interest to LES readers. I'm Andrew Hall, the Literature Book Review Editor at Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought. Today we have two segments. First, we'll have a conversation with three careful readers of LDS creative nonfiction. That includes memoirs and collections of personal essays. Then I'll speak to Theric Jepson about recent LDS poetry. Theric is the editor of the LDS literary journal, Iriantum, and a podcaster at Face and Hat. And he's a fascinating guy to speak to, so I'm looking forward to our conversation. Hi and welcome. We're uh, a group of uh, Latter-day Saints or Latter-day Saint adjacent people. Um, I think we can clarify ourselves as that. And uh, we're here to talk about creative nonfiction and the Mormonism and the Mormon diaspora written by people who affiliate or have been affiliated with the church. Um, My name is Adam. I am a media manager for Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, and I recently graduated with my master's from Harvard. Um, Chris, do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Yep. My name's Chris Angulo from Las Vegas, and I'm currently a law clerk for a judge and just a big fan of reading. Nice. And Lisa? Hi, I'm Lisa Van Orman Hadley. Um, I live in Salt Lake City, and I'm the author of Irreversible Things, a novel and stories. So we are going to jump in here to talk about nine different books that we've read over the last year, roughly. The first one we're going to start out with is Chris Bigelow's Acid Test. And uh, Chris is going to summarize. So Christopher Bigelow, he's probably familiar to many of those who are listening to this podcast. He's written a ton of books on Mormonism. One of my favorite ones is Mormonism for Dummies. And I believe he's one of the founders or co-founders of Ariantum. But uh, this is his first tackle at doing a memoir or an autobiographical novel. That this book, Acid Test, LSD versus LDS, was published by Zarahemla Books. And the summary of it is, and I'm just going to read it from, from the back of his book because I really enjoyed his summary. Growing up Mormon during America's early 1980s satanic panic, Bigelow escapes a religion's bland conformity by playing Dungeons and Dragons. After graduating from high school in 1984, he dives into sex, drugs, and counterculture via Salt Lake City's punk and new wave scenes. As Bigelow explores the underground, he rejects myths of supernatural good versus evil, living instead by the D&D concept of chaotic neutrality. During LSD trips, however, he starts sensing an unseen dimension. Then, Stephen King's post-apocalyptic novel, The Stand, gets him reconsidering good versus evil. After an alarming otherworldly attack, can Bigelow find spiritual protection in Mormonism's processed, regimented, corporate culture. I really enjoyed this book a lot. When I first started reading it, I, I read in the bath and normally it's like 20 to 25 minutes before your body wants you out of that water. But I stayed in there for about an hour, just sat there burning through it all because like Chris, I was a young punk rocker at the age of 11. And though I grew up in the, the mid nineties around that time. And so a lot of his experiences resonated hard with me. And it's a nice little SLC punk look at Salt Lake City, which you don't typically get to see this underground scene of punk rock or new wave and the grime and the grit that goes along with that. And it was a nice new lens, which I could view Salt Lake City, which I'm familiar with. So it was a good book. It it read fast, but at some point it kind of hit a wall for me because it goes in waves. The author tried to focus on the perspective of, of his teenage self. I mean, it was clear in his writing that he fictionalized some of the, obviously the dialogue and whatnot, but a lot of it was just trying to tell it as he saw it without any reflection from the the older, wiser Bigelow. It was just him as a teenage. And so with that, you get a lot of the teenage feelings of just always going back and forth, back and forth. I love her. I hate her. I love her. I hate her. I want to be punk rock. I don't. I, 
So you get, you get that and it plays with you emotionally and you get kind of tired because of that. And the end itself is a bit anticlimactic, if I can be a bit ironic for those who have read the book. However, uh, he's since said that he had originally planned a trilogy, but he scratched the middle book and he's only going to focus on his later life that he calls the Zion test, where it's his new dabblings into the spiritual side of Mormonism from a, what he calls a guru from the Joseph Smith Papers Project. Yeah, it was a great book. It's a fun read. If you ever want to know more about Salt Lake City from something you never knew before, I think it's fantastic. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that assessment of it um, and agree with a lot of the same feelings of it when I read it too. I felt like it fit into this very nice going through a process to become Mormon. It's a very becoming Mormon book where like you're going through darkness to find light, but also finding light within the darkness. We're going to go to Joey Franklin's Delusions of Grandeur is um, a lot of essays that are uh, like meditations on America, roughly, meditations on his place and his society. The title kind of wraps up a lot of the essays where he's having these delusions of greatness while also investigating what those delusions are and going into um, different things in his life that engages with that. For example, one of the essays at the beginning go into the idea of how his children are taught to be very warlike due to their games, due to their toys, and due to um, just society in general. And he as a father is trying to grapple with that in the essay, trying to to deal with that. And other essays deal with race, they deal with class, they deal with um, a lot of the the things that are very present in America right now, a lot of the questions that are happening. And so each of the essays are beautifully written, as Franklin is a a great writer, and are very astute in their observations of um, what troubles America and what may trouble a middle-aged father in America. Um, So I really enjoyed this one just because it was this nice look with beautiful writing on these topics. It was essays that were astute and essays that were inquisitive of the topics. So a very good collection, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. He really shines a light on different social problems. And like the light starts out kind of small and then it grows outward. So you see like how the scope of all these different problems and it's it doesn't necessarily offer solutions, but I feel like that's not the goal of these essays. The goal is to just give us a picture of what's going on. Yeah, I think it did a good job on the personal essays because they make you want to reflect and they're, they were fun to read. They were enjoyable. And so I thoroughly enjoyed that book. And going back to what Lisa said about them not having like definitive conclusions, I think that's part of the delusions that he's trying to get mm-hmm. across, right? Is the fact that like, even if we have answers to things it's still a delusion of an answer right yeah so it has this really good thread throughout it right and everything he talks about like these issues are so complex you know with the first one you were talking about with Mm -hmm. the kids playing war games and stuff like you just see (laughs) how complicated that is i don't know i highly recommend this book yeah i do too so next we're going to go to uh, Eric Fries's French Dive, and Lisa's going to give us a summary for that one. The full title of this book is French Dive, Living More with Less in the South of France. And Eric Fries is probably a name that a lot of people listening to this will recognize. He's an associate professor, and he splits his time between Indiana and Nice, France. He's the author of Dominant Traits, Hemingway on a Bike, and Impossible Men. And Hemingway on a Bike was the winner of the Association for Mormon Letters Creative Nonfiction Award in 2014. So when I 
started reading this book because because the subtitle is Living More with Less in the South of France. I really thought it was going to be like a financial how-to. And while there are certainly elements of penny pinching here, it wasn't the type of book I was expecting. It w- it was very much a memoir and more specifically a travel memoir. It documents the Freeze family's move from Indiana to Nice, France. It talks about how they were on House Hunters International and they enrolled their kids in a rigorous soccer program. And then it also has several chapters about spearfishing because Freeze did that as a hobby and also to save money on food. I really enjoyed this book. I read it really quickly as someone who admittedly has watched House Hunters International in the past, I found that whole process of how the show is made to be really fascinating. Uh, I've also been to Nice. I loved reading about it. It made me want to go back. I tend to love books like this that are travel memoirs. So, so this was a, this was a great read for me. Yeah, it was a, a quick read for me too. When I read it, it was very smooth writing. Um, which I always enjoy in a memoir where it's just like you are driving along with them, right? You're writing along with them instead of needing to piece it together. My favorite parts were um, the characterization he gave to all his little helpers who came in from HelpX to like renovate the apartment and things like that. And then one particular scene stood out to me where he and his son had to walk back from going out of town on the bus or something. And just the the relationship that he had with his son was really dynamic. And he portrayed it really in a very real sense, even though it's a book, right? But it was a very, you could kind of feel the the love between them and the rapport between him and his child. So that was kind of nice for me. Yeah, I really liked that too. And I think he served a mission in France, if I remember correctly. And so he was already familiar with the area and it and it was apparent reading it that like they weren't like this family living as Americans in France like they very much uh, fused their lives with the locals and I really liked that so now we're gonna hop to Chris who's gonna summarize Charlie Birds without the mask so if you don't know who Charlie Bird is, you say to pause the podcast right now really quick and hop onto YouTube and search BYU Cougar Dancing or something like that and just watch his videos for his sweet dance moves. This book was his memoir or autobiography of sorts of coming out to himself and coming out to others about his homosexuality. It was a good book. The way that it's structured is you have one chapter that tells the story, the narrative. The next chapter is the teaching chapter. The teaching chapter is kind of this doctrinal discussion of certain things like love and being kind and Deseret book's not always my cup of diet coke i kind of enjoy more cold-hearted facts or at least stories and so it was a little it left me wanting but uh the chapters on his story his personal experiences were really good it's written well it's fast-paced in particular i liked when he came out to himself for years he struggled with homosexuality he thought it was something that he could change and so he prayed he served a mission he did all these things And the story that he shares is that he was in the celestial room. He was praying like, hey, God, I did all these things. What's up with this? Change me. Like, I don't want to be gay anymore. And nothing happened. And so he left the celestial room super angry, started walking down the spiral staircase. And as he was doing that, he was caught in awe by the way that the light was acting with that room, how it reflect or how it shone through the thin marble walls and how it came through the stained glass mirror and put these beautiful colors of purple and blue and green up on the wall behind him. 
And by the time he got to the bottom of the staircase, he felt this big sense of peace. And so he sat down. And at that moment, he felt God's love for him and acceptance of who he was as a, as a gay male. And so it was a really nice moment because then he embraced it. He accepted himself for who he was. It wasn't something he needed to change. It was who he was. And, and it was a nice moment. And the rest of the stories, I just share his coming out with other people, the, the worries about it, and then his experiences with coming out to his brother or friends or his father, I thought was kind of a, a really cute and I don't know if funny is the right word, but he was really worried about telling his dad. And so he waited to the last moment and his dad took him out to eat in New York and they're walking down the street and he's like, hey, dad, I'm gay. And his dad like cursed really loud in the street and was like, why did you wait so long to tell me, dude? Like, I, I love you. You're my son. This is great. And so it was, it's a really uplifting book. I mean, Deseret Book put it out and so you would expect it to have what I call the fluffy types of feelings, the, the happy, the more warm feelings. And so it, it's a good book. Yeah, I agree with Chris. I think I said this in the LGBT podcast from a little bit ago in this podcast series, but it's a very primer book for me. Something that you give to someone who doesn't know a lot about LGBT things and just needs to learn about the experience of another person who's faithful in the church after coming out to themselves. And it's it's very um, uplifting in that sense, where it's a positive view of the church and a positive view of sexuality. And so it can help someone perhaps have a positive view of sexuality if they read it. And speaking as a middle-aged man who grew up in the 90s, I, I think it, it will help break. That's the targeted audience is that age group is the feel that I got for it. We have a lot of stereotypes and prejudices, and there's still people that I know personally that hold to them. So it's it would be nice that Deseret Books putting out another stepping stone into help helping make change, making progress. Definitely. Um, we're going to turn next to Carol R. Gray's Miracles Among the Rebel bringing Convoys of Humanitarian Aid, Hugs, and Hope to a War-Torn Region. Um, this is put out by Greg Coford Books, and uh, it was uh, a Herculean effort, I think, from Carol writing herself, and then as they were going through the publishing process, um, I think Carol passed away, and so her daughter took over and an editor took over in order to put it out. And it's a very warm book if you're looking for those books that can reveal a lot of the miracles that can happen in life and the miracles that can happen to those who believe and who act on that faith. Carol was a someone who lived in the UK and then she felt a, a call to bring humanitarian aid to people in Eastern Europe or in other places. And she became even, I think, the UN ambassador of foreign aid or something like that, or something with the, the UN and humanitarian aid. So she developed a lot during her life. For me, when reading it, whenever I, I get a creative nonfiction book, I always like the narrative and the conflict. And this one just felt like a lot of her retellings of her miracles, which is, is amazing and great if you needed that, that feel-good type of thing during um, very dark days that we're having nowadays. But it definitely brings forth that miracle feelings that you can have and the miracle experiences that you can have in life. Um, next, we're going to turn to Caitlin Myers' Wiving, which is a memoir of loving than leaving the patriarchy. And Lisa's going to provide our summary for that. Sure. So this is Caitlin Myers' debut memoir. It's published, I believe, by Arcade. And a little bit about Myers. She founded the San Francisco literary reading series Portuguese Artist Colony and its publishing spinoff PAC Books or PAC Books. And her real-life story, Near Misses, MRS, period, was featured on NPR's The Moth Radio Hour, and Meyer lives in Portugal. The first thing I'll say about this book is that it outlines multiple instances of child sexual abuse. It's really difficult material, so I just want to give that content warning going into this. 
Meyer grew up the youngest of six kids in Provo, Utah, the daughter of a poet mother and a visual artist father. Near the beginning of the book, we find out that Meyer had to have a hysterectomy after bleeding for months and months straight. And the same week as the hysterectomy, her mother dies. The book then goes back and forth in time, outlining her childhood with multiple instances of sexual abuse, as I said, the sudden death of her best friend, and her mother's struggles with mental illness that kind of vine their way through the family and affect everything about the family's life. I would say this, for me, is a book about breaking barriers, particularly with leaving the church and expectations of marriage and parenthood. Some of these are because of circumstance and some of them are by choice. But to me, it's like a story of liberation. I want to say like the writing was really beautiful. Like, and I, and it's a very bold book. It's very honest and blunt and beautiful. Yeah. To to piggyback off that, Lisa, I also enjoyed the the explicitness of this. I mean, it's one of the books where you always hear tells, you see things on the news, but everything just seems so far removed. And nice is a very poor choice of words to use, but it's necessary, I guess, to to read these types of things, to have it more on your radar, to be more aware of these struggles that people are experiencing, these travesties that are occurring behind closed doors in places that you think wouldn't happen. And so for those who who know friends or family or whoever it is, you're kind of, this is kind of on your radar, but you also kind of forget. And so to me, it was a good reminder of protecting children, protecting yourself, being a little bit better and just kind of helping, giving you that perspective of, of life is, it's kind of rough sometimes, but like you said, in, in the end, you can still come out. Picking off those thoughts, the location of the book is right, Provo and BYU and her family is a part of like the BYU family, right? Because I think her father works there. And uh, these are places where BYU, for example, only reports one rape a year usually on their their rape report. And you know that that's not accurate. And so this helps you, you know, kind of lift the veil a little bit from your eyes, just as, you know, Charlie Bird's book is helpful in allowing you to approach something of a faithful thing. This is something that helps you see the reality of things that are happening in your own backyard sometimes. Ever since 2017 and the really important Rape Awareness Month that happened on BYU campus that began changes on the campus systemically, we also um, need to approach changes systemically within our own communities. And so it's a very book that's needed for the moment. What I was thinking when you guys were talking about was like how in like the Doctrine and Covenants we get a lot of stories of people who fail and things like that. I, I wouldn't say Meyer failed or anything in her life. I think she's living a very wonderful life, but it allows um, people who are active in the church to be able to approach this. Um, so we're going to turn to uh, Malia Day Warner's Lies of the Magpie, a memoir now, um, and Chris is going to give us the summary for that. So this is Malia's debut memoir. It's talking about her battles with postpartum depression and how she came to realize that she had it and how she dealt with it through whether or not to get medication and working her way all the way up to get that medication and that professional help that she needed to break the the barrier that it was causing inside of her. Uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this book out of most of the books that I read this year, this is one of my most favorite books. The way that it was written was fantastic. Well, it was divided into three sections in this first section. Jump from the present tense of her driving to Tucson while in labor, then jump back to the past when she had her first child. And it kept going like that and that with sharing a story of, of this experiences of her feeling inadequate or 
depressed or her not knowing it at that time too. I also enjoy, there's a, what I'd call an M. Night Shyamalan twist into it. It's not a sixth sense kind of twist. You're not like, whoa, it's more like the village where you're eased into it. You can, you can tell where it's going from the beginning. And when it happens, it's fulfilling. You feel like it made the story more complete, even though it's not the best of twists. It ties the story together and it brings it well. But to me, my favorite part of the whole book was its underlying threads of the patriarchy of the LDS church and people's feelings that they have to serving that church and how it's prioritized against one's spouse. And so there's a few stories that she talks about where her husband chose serving a calling where he was going out to serve someone in the ward or doing something like that over her. And she was battling something very difficult and, and trying at the time and she needed that help. And so for me, that hit really hard because I'm, I'm a male. I'm married to my wife, a little bit redundant on that, but uh, we have children and it's eye-opening because I grew up, you always say yes, you always do these things. And I had a friend who we were sitting in a sacrament meeting one time and someone just came to ask him to pass the sacrament. And they recently just had their fourth kid and he said no. And I was like, whoa, wait, what? You can say no. And it kind of changed my world right then. I know it's kind of a dumb little story, but it changed my world. And, and this book in a similar way helped to open my eyes even more to say, you need to look at what you value. And how you value those things and how you can, how they all interplay with each other, but how you need to prioritize it and, and be more perceptive to your surroundings. Because I mean, my wife could be struggling at times and we have four children similar to Malia. And so a lot of these things hit kind of home. It's, it's raw. It was a, it was a great book and the work that she's done since then. I mean, she, well, prior to this book, obviously she started a podcast called power principles podcast, and she's advocating for educating women so they can understand postpartum depression and to, to move forward with that and get the help that they need. Yeah. I, I found this book really compelling. And I, as someone who personally uh, was diagnosed with depression when my twins were one, I found this to be a breath of fresh air and a really important story. And I, feel like it helped me make sense of made make sense of my own depression in a way and the narratives that were given around mental health in the church. I just I think this book is really important. Highly recommend. I also feel that way. Um, I think whenever a Mormon woman writes a book, I always think it's an important thing to listen to since a lot of the times in the church women are not listened to or they're given the responsibility of being like a token woman there and so reading more books by women whether they've left the church like in Wiving or if they stay in the church like in Magpie I think reading those narratives are important more so than reading um, like narratives of men in the church or among the patriarchy um, that makes it the church because you always want to understand that and I think Malia does a really good job of walking us through her experience, walking us through her life, and walking us through those opinions that she felt on her life. So next, I'm going to briefly summarize another book that I read that's in the creative nonfiction, which is Anne Chamberlain's Clogs and Shawls, Mormons, Moorlands, and the Search for Zion, which is from the University of Utah Press. And uh, this book is definitely creative nonfiction because it opens up with her imagining and her creating almost a, a a created nonfiction account, quite literally, of her family, where she's living through um, the lives and the eyes of her ancestors, moving up through the, the family. This all comes from interviews, right? So it's not them writing their own story, it's her imagining what, what may happen in their own story. And so she um, relates that, and she relates just the movement from the past women all the way to her generation is, is quite 
moving in a way. For me, it, the the writing itself is a little slow and laborious to get through. But I think if you enjoy something that's like a memoir and something that's fresh and nonfiction and something that gives a history and gives a history in a very different way than, say, like a history book, which is what I would enjoy more personally. But um, I, I think people would enjoy that, definitely. All right, we're going to turn to our last book that we wanted to talk about um, when we got together after Andrew asked us and came up with this list of books that we'd all read or, or seen and interacted with. And that is Patrick Madden's Disparates from the University of Nebraska Press. And Lisa's going to give us a brief summary of that, and then we'll discuss it and then move to our, our final discussion of creative nonfiction in general. Sure. So Patrick Madden teaches creative writing at BYU. He's the author of three books of essays, all published by University of Nebraska Press, Quotidiana, Sublime Physic, winner of the AML Award for Creative Nonfiction in 2016, and of course, Disparates. And he also co-edited After Montaigne, Contemporary Essayists Cover the Essays, and he helped translate the selected poems of Eduardo Milan. So this book is, as its title suggests, collection of disparate essays. The back cover defines disparate as different or miscellaneous, but it also notes that in Spanish, the word means nonsense, folly, or absurdity. One of my favorite things about this collection is how Madden plays with form. For example, the first essay is titled Writer Michael Martone's Leftover Water and is written in the form of a Q&A between the seller and potential buyers of a leftover bottle of water partially imbibed by author Michael Martone. And the first question for the seller is, does Martone floss? And the Q&A continues from there. It's very funny and endearing. And on a personal note, Michael Martone was my advisor in my creative writing MFA program. So I was delighted to see that the first essay was about him. And like Michael Martone infused himself into the bottle of water in the essay, Madden somehow managed to infuse the essence of Martone's personality into this essay, which was really delightful. And there's an essay in the form of a word search and an essay created using Botnik's Predictive Writer. There are also guest appearances from other writers throughout the book. There are a lot of photographs and sketches, which I always love in a book. I just found this book to be really delightful and right up my alley. I love books that experiment with form and I like books that don't take themselves too seriously and are playful. I found this to be really well-written and clever. Yeah, I'm curious to see what Adam and Chris have to say about it. It was just really fun. You could tell that Madden was having a lot of fun with the English language. He was, it's not the professor in the ivory tower writing about some experience, right? It's it's Madden, like just the day-to-day talking about how much he loves rock or something or music, or it's Madden trying to think creatively about the English language, which I always think is a very exciting prospect, right? When someone tries to break those barriers of what is normative and what is normal to a reader, right? It's not like Delusions of Grandeur, which is straight essays um, that we talked about earlier in the podcast. It's as Lisa said, just that crazy all over the place. I mean, like, when I got to the crossword one, I'm like, do I do the crossword? Or like, do I have time to do a crossword? Because <laughs> usually when I'm reading a book, I'm reading it quickly. Um, and and it was very, very nice breath of fresh air almost, especially during like nowadays during pandemic times when a lot of people have a lot of pressure on them and a lot of different stresses. It's, it's nice to have a book to just relax with. 
maybe Chris in his bath, you know, doing a crossword for an essay um, or something where like you just need that release of stress so you can just sit down with a book and not have to overstress it um, and just like relax through it almost. Well, if we're doing bathroom confessionals, yes, this was read in the tub over a couple of days, but I don't think I can add much more to what you guys said. I, I don't read creative essays. I, I think this is the first time I've ever read them in my life. I've kind of strayed away from English writing those types of courses, but it was thoroughly enjoyable. They were well written. I didn't find myself getting bored of them. Uh, there were some fun takeaways, but yeah, it was just a fun experience overall. All right. So the the books that we we discussed here, get a list of them again. Christopher Bigelow's Acid Test, Joey Franklin's Delusions of Grandeur, Eric Fries's French Dive, Charlie Bird's Without the Mask, Carol Gray's Miracles Among the Rubble, Caitlin Myers' Wiving, Malia Day Warner, Lies of the Magpie, Anne Chamberlain, Clogs and Shawls, and Patrick Madden's Disparates. And uh, as you can tell, probably they all have a lot of different feels to them, right? They have a lot of different angles that they take on the world. So at the close of the podcast, we just want to reflect a little bit on nonfiction and using creative nonfiction to approach either a Mormon audience or a Mormon approaching creative nonfiction and just, you know, talk about that for a little bit. I can start off. I always think creative nonfiction allows people to reflect on themselves or their world or their language with Madden, for example, and and bring in their own personality and their own experiences into a text, right? Rather than a fiction book, which I, I love fiction, where the, the author is trying to create this character to go out, usually in creative nonfiction, you're creating yourself into that character and it creates this separation, but also this closeness with the author's character and the narrator, right? The, the, the capital N narrator. And I think that's something that creative nonfiction allows us to do um, in Mormonism. It allows us to look at how we've experienced life, how we have experienced what has happened, and then engage into that. And for these, we're able to see what these authors have done throughout their life and what they're delivering us to on a page, but then also what they're hiding from the page, right? And things like that. And I think that's a really unique thing that creative nonfiction allows us to do. I like all that. I never get sick of reading memoir and creative nonfiction. I think it's because I've always been really interested in other people's experiences and their stories. And I feel like particularly memoir, like when I can read firsthand accounts of things that have happened to people, I feel like it helps me develop empathy for other people's experiences in a way that's really hard to do otherwise. Like it's hard to discredit someone's personal experience and... I loved reading all of these books that I read and I feel like they opened up my world and gave me a view into all kinds of different lives that are very different from one another. And I loved that. Yeah. Unlike Lisa, I do get really bored of autobiographies and memoirs. I don't know if I can say this in this day and age, but I, I, I will never choose a chick flick when we watch a movie. I will never choose one. I always choose sci-fi or horror every single time. But whenever we do watch one, I'm the one on the couch crying. I'm the one that's in love with the movie. Like, yes, marry the dude or marry the girl. Like, I'm just enthralled with the, book, the, the movie. And reading, it's, it's similar. I read just cold, hard facts, some analysis of those facts, and I love that. It feeds my soul. But I force myself to jump into creative nonfiction every now and then because kind of like what Lisa and Adam said, it, it's a different world. It, it fuses these facts from the past that we kind of disassociate with people. And then puts it together so that when I go back to those facts, it 
makes it more real. I can try to look at the different views. I can try to open my mind and, and expand my experiences from knowledge. I mean, I, the Book of Mormon, there's this command in there multiple times saying to remember, remember. And there's an old Jewish tradition that to remember is to kind of become part of, to make it part of your past. And I think that's what's so great about creative nonfiction is that you can live someone's experience like Bigelow's book. You you felt it. You could feel like you were like an 18-year-old teenage dude experiencing punk rock and new wave in your sexuality, trying to understand life. Or with Wiving, you were experiencing these harsh travesties and trying to experience that and process it yourself. And so it allows you to jump into that new world and, and make sense of, or at least understand it a little bit more, this difficult life that we live. All right. Well, we're grateful to Dialogue for letting us talk for a little bit together and grateful to you guys, the listeners, too, for listening to us for just a little bit. Thank you. You guys are gems. Beyond the Block, part of the Dialogue Podcast Network, is a weekly Come Follow Me podcast that centers the marginalized in Mormonism. Join Brother Jones and Brother Knox, a Black Lifelong member and a queer convert theologian, respectively, as they read the scriptures through the lenses of their identities and others in an effort to bring the culture of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints closer and more in line with its theology, which centers Christ's justice and compassion. New episodes every Monday. Dialogue Podcast Network. Welcome to the Dialogue Book Report, where we talk about books and literature of interest to LDS readers. Today, I'm joined by Therick Jepson, the editor of Iriantum, the literary journal of the Association for Mormon Letters. Therick is joining us from Berkeley, California. Therick is also one of the co-hosts of Face and Hat, another one of the proud members of the Dialogue Podcast Network. Therick, welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be here with you. Yeah, I'm excited to have you because, for one thing, Therick is a great proponent of Mormon literature. He's been doing interesting things for a long time, a lot of great writing, a lot of great writing of his own poetry and short fiction, and editing of other people's work. A couple years ago, he hosted the Association for Mormon Letters conference in Berkeley, and I got the chance to sleep on his couch for a couple of days. Those were good so, times. It was good times. <laughs> so today, we're going to talk about Iriantum and poetry. Derek has a review coming out in the coming spring issue of Dialogue about some books of poetry that have been published in recent years. So let's start with that. Tell us about some of the books that you'll be reviewing. It's a few books, and I think I could split them into two main categories. I'm reviewing some books by poets in the sunset of their careers, uh, including, for instance, a book by Colin Douglas, who hadn't published any poetry in about 20 years, and then came out with this collection that was all his work over the decades. And also some poets who are really coming into their prime right now, like Sonny Wilkinson, Michael Lavers, and uh, Dana Patterson, people who are doing really exciting work right now. And... Um, getting published, and, and it's great to see them coming out of the collections. It's an exciting group of books. I'm excited for people to see the review. It seems like you look at the old days of poetry, and there was a lot of individual poems in dialogue and sunstone, places like that, but now it seems like people are putting out their own books of poetry a lot more than they used to. Well, who would you like to start with? Let's start with two writers who are doing very different work, both really excellent work, in my opinion. Um, let's look at Darlene Young's Homespun and Angel Feathers, which came out in 2019 from BCC Press, and Dana Patterson's If Mother Braids a Waterfall, which came from Signature. They're both a little over a year old now. Two really good books of similar lengths. They're both excellent, and they really couldn't be any more different from each other. Dana 
her, her, if Mother Braid's a waterfall, one way to read this book is the story of her passage from being a believing Mormon to no longer being a believing Mormon. And she explores that in a lot of really complex forms and a lot of sequences of poems that are shuffled through the deck that is the collection. She addresses these ideas in a lot of different ways. And she has a lot of like parallel plots sort of going on. Like she has stories about various ancestors of hers. She has stories about her and her husband. And those stories are interwoven as the different poems are juxtaposed in different ways through the text. Whereas um, Darlene's book is very much from a position of a believing, solidly placed Latter-day Saint, uh, which is not to say that it is at all sentimental or simplistic. Uh, She deals with complex issues and difficult ideas also. And there are themes certainly going through it, but there's nothing quite so deliberately formalistic as you see in, in Dana's collection. Two excellent books by two really great poets, and they're just so different. Like, it's exciting to see those books come out so close to each other. Well, Darlene won the uh, Association for Mormon Letters Poetry Award in 2019. She did. And Dana is going to be one of the finalists. will be announced soon of the uh, 2020. I'm not surprised. I've read, I think, four collections that came out in 2020, and I would argue hers is the strongest. The, uh, there are other good ones, but yeah, hers, hers really impressed me. All right, what else would you like to talk about? Well, you know, one of the things I'm going to talk about in my review that you were so kind as to um, accept and mm. see the publication, Andrew, is one of the differences between these older poets and these uh, mid-career poets is that the mid-career poets, by and large, have been out publishing their work uh, the ones I talk about in the review are out publishing their work in a lot of different places. So like I have Michael Laver's book in front of me right now, and I'm turning to the page where it lists all the places he's been published. And Agni Online, Alaska Quarterly, Antioch Review, Baltimore Review, Beloit uh, Poetry, the Columbia Review, Crazy Horse, Elsewhere Epic, George Review goes on and on. Like He's very much engaged in seeing his work in a lot of different places. And that's typical of like him or Dana or Sonny. Um, whereas these older poets that I was mentioning before, most of them, at least the ones in the review, are not publishing their poems individually with various magazines. They are, they're disconnected from that. And I think part of that is that the nature of publishing individual works has changed so much over the last hundred years. Like every decade, the rules were different. If anything, it's accelerated in the last 20 or so years. And especially if you want to publish really Mormon-centric work, And if you want to publish it in a Mormon-centric venue, there just aren't that many options. Uh, There's Dialogue and Sunstone, which you mentioned. There's Iriantum, which you mentioned. But there just just aren't that many. Those three places together cannot publish the amount of poetry to support all the different poets that we have. Like, this is kind of a golden age of Mormon poetry in some ways. We have so many great writers working. But if you want to publish Mormon-centric work in a Mormon-centric venue, there's not a lot of space. Although there is uh, the fact that BCC Press is publishing books of poetry, Signature is still publishing books of poetry. That's true. They've both so, accelerated. And then there's, it's easier for people to now publish a book, as, as, as you mentioned, publish your own book. And I think these, some of these late career people, we haven't seen books for them for, for a while, like Colin Douglas and, and Bob Christmas. Yes. But they've been now, since, since the days of self-publishing has really gotten going, they've been suddenly putting out a lot of works. They have, and they have these catalogs, these deep catalogs. Bob Christmas is a good example. Like he's, You definitely get the sense from Bob that he is rushing to get everything in print while he still has time. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and I'm, not, I'm not reading too much into that. He pretty much says that in the introduction to his book. That's basically what he says. Now, Michael Lavers, you mentioned, Darlene and Dana are both very much talking about their religious experiences. Is that part of what Michael's doing as well? He is. Uh, it's 
often a little more opaque. Uh, some of it mm. feels in code. If you are a keen Latter-day Saint reader, it's a bit easier to figure out what he's saying and how it is in some way a Latter-day Saint view of the world. But it's it's definitely less obvious. And some of the poems that seem to fit in that category can be the ones that maybe didn't appear somewhere else. And if you publish them in Alaska Quarterly, for instance, without the setting which emphasizes the Mormonness of the writing, um, it's not clear that anyone would be able to see it. Because it's not that he or Sonny is another good example of this, aren't working on these questions of, of what does a Mormon aesthetic look like in modern poetry. But if you, as part of the Mormon community, it's a little bit hard to see. Kim Johnson's maybe a good example of this also. She's very disinclined to be identified as a Mormon writer in any way, but it's there in her work, but she does not want that label and she avoids it at all costs. But she also very much is focused on religious issues. For sure. I mean, religion is a big part of what Kimberly does, but just not. I mean, it sounds like people who are BYU tenure track professors, that's something they're avoiding. I think Lance Larson is kind of, he kind of looks down on doing things that are too specifically Mormon. And Michael Lavers is there at BYU. Oh, is, I didn't know he was there. Thing. Yeah. Yeah, Lance Larson's an interesting example because he definitely has positioned himself as not wanting to be seen as doing Mormon stuff, as not be a Mormon poet. But when he was invited to be part of BYU's new pandemic uh, collection that the BYU library did, he wrote a very Mormon, explicitly Mormon poem, and it was published by the BYU mm -hmm. library, which I was kind of delighted to see, honestly. So it appears that many of these people have Heavenly Mother as a major theme. This is definitely a trend in Mormon poetry. I mean, the big Mormon mm -hmm. book, a single author book of the last few years was Rachel Steenblick's book, Mother's Milk. That probably made a bigger impression on the culture than any poetry book has in ages within the Latter-day Saint community. When we, at Peculiar Pages, published Dove Song, it was, there was no difficulty finding work from the 21st century. And since that book's come out, there's just more. You could publish, I mean, Carolyn Pearson published an entire volume of Heavenly Mother poems last year. There's no shortage. Like, this is what poets are doing right now. Remind us what Tub Song is. So I am the publisher, along with Elizabeth Beaton of Peculiar Pages. We do multi-author anthologies focused on Mormon stuff. And, and our most recent book was Dove Song, which was a collection of Heavenly Mother poetry edited by Dana, actually, Dana Patterson, along with Tyler Chadwick and Martin Polito. Another AML winner, if I may. That's right. And those were also not just contemporary poems. They was, went back in. Right, that went back prior to Eliza R. Snow. We go way back to the beginnings. This is, this is definitely a part of the poetic tradition. This is something, actually, this is one of my hobby horses at Face and Hat that I managed to bring up every once in a while, is that one of the roles of the poet in our culture, or any culture for that matter, is to say the things that the prophets can't say. Prophets have to tell truth and poets get to speculate. They get to explore mm -hmm. the unfilled spaces. And that's why we need a strong poetic tradition, because poets have this capacity to explore and just try on ideas and see how they feel and present them to their people. And that's why we need our best poets writing great Mormon work that other Latter-day Saints get to see. Well, let me throw in one more just because, or maybe two more. Let's, let's do two more because these also have a connection. I want to talk about Origami Drama, which came out in 2019. It's by Brooke Larson and Book of Lamentations, which is mostly by James Goldberg and came out in 2020. Uh, these two books share some interesting things. Uh, Brooke Larson's book is not particularly, in any obvious way, Mormon, but it plays with 
the very concept of being a book in really interesting ways. It's called origami drama, and some of the pages will have like lines and dashed lines as if you were supposed to tear the book out of the page and fold it using the instructions that are the poem. Like the poems are often about the actual paper they're written on. Uh, one of my favorite ones is called Grease Catcher. And it just says, rip this page out, rip it out and place it on your cutting board because this piece of paper can help sop up the grease as you're making dinner. And I, I love how physical the book was in that way. And then Book of Lamentations is, is very much a book about right now, about the tragedies we have been experiencing specifically in America, but really worldwide. Uh, it's about the pandemic. It's about Black Lives Matter. It's about a lot of the important conversations and difficult experiences that people have been going through with an extremely Mormon spin. He invited a couple other poets to write a few poems that appear in here. And Camilla Stark of, of the archive does the illustrations. And it's also just a really lovely thing to hold in your hand. The physical making of these books. Some people have been doing some great things. Doesn't Dana have in her book, uh, you know, it's partly of a physical experience when you read it? Yeah, that's fair to say. There's the cover. I wish I could show it to everyone, but this is audio, is sort of a kaleidoscope of her polygamous past. And aspects of that image appear here and there through the book. And her previous collection, which was uh, a small chapbook called Titania in Yellow. I don't have it in front of me right now. You can fact check mm. me later. Uh, but it's just a small, really lovely thing to hold in your hand from from a small press. A couple of years ago, there was a book called uh, Picture Dictionary by Kristen Eliasson that won the AML Prize. And that was also another beautifully illustrated book. Yeah, well, and Rachel Steenblick's books also are illustrated. I would like us to talk a little bit about just the interesting opportunities that are available outside of books. I just mentioned Lance Larson's poem in A Desolating Sickness, the theme that mm -hmm. uh, Dave Butler and the BYU Special Collections put together. And there are a couple other poets involved and quite a few fiction writers. One of the poets is Gabriel, Gabriel uh, Gonzalez-Nunez, who is also the translations editor at Iriantum. And by the way, what I love about both A Desolating Sickness and Iriantum is when you don't have to do an entire book and there's not the process of putting together an entire book, anybody can show up and be a part of it. Like the barrier to entry is not that hard. So for instance, in Iriantum, so there are 13 people who uh, published work in the latest Iriantum. Most of the people involved in the latest issue of Iriantum are not people that I have, that I know that well. And I'm the editor, right? And, and I am fairly tapped in. And I love that when it's just publishing a poem or a short story or an essay, it's a lot more open. It's a lot more possible for people who may not be as involved in the scene to submit something. There's a lot less risk. You can write something and, and share it with us. Now, this latest issue has quite a few uh, Spanish language poems as well, right? It does. Gabriel uh, ran down a couple previously published works for us. There's a poem about locusts, and there's a short story about a fallen angel who changes his mind. Which, by the way, there's going to be an upcoming issue about artistic views of the plan of salvation from pre-existent life all the way to post-existent life, and uh, we're interested in artistic explorations of that, like this particular story by Mario Montani. These are the, this is the first issue where we've had non-English material in the Orientum, right? Sort of. It's the first one where we've translated from other languages. So Gabriel is focusing on Spanish and Portuguese. I would love to have uh -huh. translations in other languages too, but I don't have volunteers for that yet. We did translate something from English into Spanish in the last issue, just as sort of a signal that we wanted to do this, but we're much more interested in bringing stuff into English. Uh, that's because Iriantum is an English language journal, ultimately. 
Gabriel Gonzalez Nunez, who is the translator, also had his own book of poetry uh, in 2020. And that is also one of the finalists for the uh, AML Award this year. Yeah, I'm excited for him. So, I have not read it because I don't read Spanish. but <laughs> we, we made sure we had judges that were Spanish readers this year. How long have you been, do, been the editor of Iriantum? So we just finished my second issue. I took over when I stepped down as president of the AML, which was May of 2020. So it's coming up on a year, working on the third issue now, hoping to get to a point where we do four a year. Currently, my current goal is three a year, but we're working up. I'd like to do more than that. Would love to get to a point where we are where we pay our contributors, which seems like a really basic thing, but very few publishing outlets of our sort do. Um, we would like to be one of the, those that do. So if any deep-pocketed people are interested in helping make that possible, that would be great. Because ultimately, the world runs on money, Andrew. Mm-hmm. And if we were a paying venue, then we will get more submissions. We'll be able to publish higher quality stuff. We will have people submitting who might not otherwise. And it won't prevent us from publishing people for the first time and publishing people you've never heard of. It will It'll probably mean we can publish more people you haven't heard of because we'll know about more of them. Now, this is the third issue to come out in the new Iriantum. How about a little background? The, the Association for Mormon Letters started publishing Iriantum in 1999. And if you think, what is that? Where does that word come from? It's a Book of Mormon word, which means many waters. Uh, chosen to show the journal would welcome many different types of writing by, for, or about Mormons. And so it was a print journal started by Christopher Bigelow and Vincent Parkinson in 1999, and it was published several times a year until 2013. Those uh, paper volumes are out, out there, and they're also mostly online at the AML website, so you can you can access them there. But so then it went out of business in 2013. Alas. Alas, yeah. And so we had several years without that great place for people to publish. Those earlier issues had a lot of reviews and news, just a lot of really interesting things in them. And now it has been restarted as a purely online venture, right? There's no, not a paper publishing at all. That is correct. Frankly, there aren't that many people who want to pay for paper. And mm-hmm. it makes things, it just makes everything more complicated. I just want to put good work in front of people. It started again in 2018. What's going to be the next issue coming up? So the next issue is going to be an anniversary issue. We're running a little late, should have had it a couple years ago, but the 175th anniversary of Joe Smith and the Devil by Parley P. Pratt, the first work of Mormon fiction. Oh my. So uh, Kent Larson is putting together a critical uh, edition of Joe Smith and the Devil, and he will be contributing an essay about that project and, and about, about the original story. We'll publish the story. The version that he fills is the best version, and we have several writers and um, artists who are working together to put together some uh, work specifically for that issue. So, And then the issue after that, and submissions are still open for this one, is called Build, Building Zion. Natalie Brown, who uh, recently finished her dissertation at Columbia and focuses on questions of home, is putting together this issue for us. It's going to be about how home connects to LDS theology, LDS culture, how material aspects uh, matter a lot. She feels, and I agree with her, that these questions have become very present in a year of pandemic where we have had to consider what it means to be in a place when we've been so limited in the places we can be in. It should be a very interesting issue. Please come to the Iriantum website and check out the submission guidelines. Natalie wants to see your work. And tell me what was the theme of this, the last issue that, that has been already been published? So the previous issue was uh, Hope and Healing, which seemed like a good theme to have coming out of 2020. 
And also it was a, I hope that would be in contrast with the issue before that, which was called Furiantum, a Halloween themed issue, which I put together quickly as my first issue in charge, which included a lot of classic works as well as some great new stuff. Well, now, so you mentioned this BYU exhibit. Can you tell me some more about that? Yeah, so I don't know exactly how it got started, but uh, some folks working down in the basement of the Harold B. Lee Library in Special Collections recruited uh, David Butler, the author of such works as uh, Witchy Winter, one of our great science fiction writers right now, and he's doing insanely Mormon stuff. The Witchy series, it delves into Heavenly Mother, it delves into temples. It, it is one of the most Mormon books you'll ever read, though the word Mormon will never appear in it. Have you read any of them, Andrew? I have read the first volume, and I love it. Mm-hmm. And I very much love his other recent book, The Cunning Man, which we just we had a podcast about that a few months ago, where he it was our dialogue uh, book club book. And that is a book in which Mormonism is part of it. It's about a 1930s... Uh, okay, <laughs> go back and see and listen to the last <laughs> podcast. But, but yes, he's one of our most interesting speculative authors and doing great stuff with uh, Mormon imagery in his books. So it was great to have... Uh, David invite me to be part of this, and the other people invited some some really well-known names, especially people like Lance Larson that we were talking about, but also people who are well-known in various genres, such as uh, Dan Wells or Brandon Mole, or, and then some some of the more artsy-fartsy people like myself and, and William Morris, and we had some poets, just a nice variety of people who were invited. And the great thing about it is that they did pay actual money for mm-hmm. things, which hardly ever happens. Like, this is what I really want to do, my, my dream, which I am not keeping secret. I'm saying it a lot so that it sounds less crazy every time I say it. But my, my dream is that every issue of Iriantum, we pay $10,000 approximately, split among the people. That's a lot of money, and that's my goal. If my math is correct, the money that the BYU library spent on these stories was pretty close to $20,000. 28 stories. That's how you get quality work is you make it worth people's time. And artists deserve the same kind of respect for their work that other fields do. And um, that's what I love most about this, besides the fact that it's actually a really good collection of stories and really diverse and interesting in so many different kinds of angles on writing about a pandemic. But the best thing about it was that they treated the LDS writers like professionals, and we're just not very good at doing that. And where can people see these stories? If you go to pandemicstories.lib.byu.edu, you can find it. Or just, I'm sure if you Google desolating sickness BYU, it will turn up. And you can actually go to the library, right? There's an exhibit. You can, yeah, if you're local. I think you have to be a student or a faculty member to get into the library right now. But if you can get in, get in. That's right. And they have these beautiful panels with all all the stories on them. Any other good books lately? I'm currently reading Book of Lamentations. Haven't quite finished that. I'm reading Mary Jane Rice's previous collection, her first collection. So those are the two poetry books. Oh, no. And I'm also reading a huge Mae Swenson collection that I've been working on, who um, is not just a great poet with an interesting Mormon heritage, but in Dana's book that I mentioned earlier, If Mother Braids a Waterfall, she has all these poems written to her female progenitors. And she also writes one to Mae Swenson, whom she adopts as like a role model for what it means to be a Mormon poet and a not-so-Mormon poet. Mae Swenson's work is great. If you've never read her, she's, she's important. She shows up in, you know, textbooks, and she's an important 20th century American writer, full stop. Now, tell us about your podcast that you're doing, Face and Hat. What kind of things have you been doing this last year? 
So the last year we've been focused on the excellent biography. It's, it's about 10 years old now, but the David O. McKay and uh, The Rise of Modern Mormonism, which is a book I'm sure no one who listens to your podcast needs explained to them. But we've been, we've been going through it chapter by chapter and, and discussing it and thinking about how what we learned about the modern church from looking at the David O. McKay era. And there's some beautiful stuff and some troubling stuff, and it's constantly enlightening. We're going to be doing the chapter on the international church next. So if you'd like to join us, that we'll be recording that next week. <laughs> okay. Well, th- Derek, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. And I'm looking forward to seeing you online at the Association for Mormon Letters Conference, which will be held in June, we believe. The date's not been finalized yet, but by the time this comes out, it will be. That's correct. So go to the AML blog and get the finalized dates. Early June. Okay. Early June. And we'll be announcing, the, of course, the annual awards for all the 2020 books and plays and movies there. I'm really interested in hearing about all the books. So I'm excited. I'm always excited when the... When the finalists. The finalists. That's the word. Thank okay. you. This show is part of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of LD's tradition, thought, and arts and culture, including wonderful shows like Face and Hat, featuring Aaron Brewster and Eric Jepson. Find more about them at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network.